This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. Support for today's show comes from the Life is Good Ping podcast. Join co-founders of Life is Good, Bird and John Jacobs, as they talk to influential musicians, athletes, business leaders, and everyday people about the role of optimism in their lives. They'll also end each episode with a ping-pong charity challenge where the winner gets to donate to the charity of their choice. The Life is Good Ping Podcast kicked off Thursday, June 13th with the legendary Ringo Starr. Subscribe now on Stitcher, Spotify, or iTunes and add some good vibes to your day. And now, enjoy the show. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. When Adam Savage first began his career building special effects models for films like Star Wars Episode II and The Matrix Reloaded, he never would have dreamt that he would one day step in front of the camera to host his own hit television series, become a leading science communicator, and the poster boy for a whole new generation of makers and builders. After all, he's still just having fun doing what he loves, making cool stuff and blowing it up, whether it's on his hit Discovery Channel series, Mythbusters, or his spinoff for young people, Mythbusters Jr. Now the man who makes the impossible possible is stepping it up a notch, building and testing some of the most over-the-top contraptions from fiction, history, and the movies for his new series, Savage Builds, which airs Fridays at 10 Eastern on the Science Channel. And today, Adam Savage comes on the show to share how he managed to build a working prototype of Marvel's Iron Man suit, how he nearly bankrupt the Bay Area's most prestigious 3D printing lab in the process, and what it was like to fly around with tiny jet engines strapped to his arms. He discusses how Oscar-winning director Peter Jackson helped him take to the skies in a real-life World War I dogfight, why his attempt to recreate one of World War II's most monumentally bizarre inventions was less than successful, and the importance of asking questions and embracing failure. Adam talks about his love of juggling and magic, his friendship with famous magician and leading skeptic The Amazing Randy, why Adam fears that the skeptic community has grown too hostile, and how he discovered that Darwinism doesn't make for good television plus his obsession with the dodo bird, and why coat hangers are a maker's best friend. Coming up with Adam Savage in just a moment. Adam Savage is the former co-host of the Discovery Channel television series Mythbusters and Unchained Reaction and the host of Mythbusters Jr. on the Science Channel. Prior to that, he was a special effects designer and fabricator whose model work has appeared in major films including Star Wars Episode II and The Matrix Reloaded. Now Adam has a new show called Savage Builds, which airs Fridays at 10 Eastern on the Science Channel. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, Adam, I've been a fan of Mythbusters, and I really enjoyed your new show, Savage Builds, but until I read your resume here, I never knew how many different hats you've worn over the years. (laughs) Animator, graphic designer, actor, carpenter, projectionist, film developer. I am a serial skill collector. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I, I very much enjoy gathering new skills and solving problems with them, and I have been uh, incredibly diverse in my employment history, yeah. 
Yeah, you've just about held every production job there is, I think. <laughs> That's incredible. Do, do you like to kind of dabble in different areas and just mix it up a little bit? Do you, I, do you find that one area informs the other? And it so does. Forth? One area doesn't form the other. And I've always um, – it is a weird thing to try and unpack the reasons for one's own success. Um, however, I did well in several of my careers uh, in making things, and I think one of the things that aided and abetted that was that I really like understanding the big picture. Mm -hmm. And now as an employer, I know that when my employees understand what they're, what they're doing and how it fits into the bigger whole, they're better informed and do, are happier with their work. Uh, I've always been somebody who likes to understand how what I'm doing fits into the larger picture. And yeah, uh, I'm never tired of learning uh, a new thing. Um, I've uh, Over the last few years, one of the separate things I've done is take uh, stage shows around the country and yeah. around the world. Um, first with Jamie Heineman, then with Michael Stevens from Vsauce. And uh, every industry carries with it. It's it's shorthand. You know, the podcast industry right. has shorthand <laughs> for people to understand what's going on about readership and reach. And in the in the touring industry, there's this lovely convention, which is, I mean, there's every imaginable type of tour. There's the Nutcracker to Hamilton sure. to magic shows, sure. right? They all require different types of infrastructure. And every theater that they go to is a different shape and size and has a different loading document. With all of these different variables, you would imagine that there's a huge amount of logistics to moving shows from theater to theater. And there are. However, the old timers in the industry only ever want to know one thing, which is how many 18 wheelers do you have? <laughs> and that's the only fact that they need to yeah. know to know how it's going to affect their day. You yeah. have two 18 wheelers? We know exactly how long that loadout should take. Yeah, yeah. That pretty much sums up the size of the show and everything. Apparently, it? and that's, I love the simplicity of that. So the, the first guy that told me that, he was like, So you two's most recent world tour, 186 18 wheelers. Oh my it's God. The is biggest that true? tour in history. <laughs> wow. Uh, they were so giant, they ruined every location they performed on. Uh, not on purpose, but on purpose so that part of the budget for U2's tour was the quarter of a million dollars to resod every soccer pitch they set up on. Anyway, uh, we were a two-truck show. Two-truck. Okay. Two-trucks. Okay. Nice and nice and Nice, nice and, and tight. Yeah. <laughs> well, you mentioned magic shows a second ago. I, I read somewhere that you're a big fan of magic and juggling. Is that right? I am. Card-throwing? Well, you Which know, a lot of, like a lot of lonely is, teenagers, I gravitated towards the things that the ladies like. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Me too. Um, yeah, I, I'm lucky enough to count a lot of wonderful magicians as very close friends. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I I am a big fan of magic. I Penn and Teller, I love both their work oh, and yeah. those two guys. Right. Uh, when I went out on tour with uh, Michael Stevens, I actually hired as the director of the tour – uh, a wonderful magician and magic designer named Michael Weber. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Michael's been a collaborator, yeah. was a yeah, collaborator right. of Ricky Jays for decades sure. and also David Blaine and many others. Uh, and Michael, the reason I wanted to do that is because I actually believe that magic, and I add comedy to this, magic and comedy are the two most difficult forms of narrative storytelling mm -hmm. because they have immediate stakes. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You send yeah. you send somebody a book yeah. and it's got a story That's in it. True. Those don't get me wrong. It's not that the stakes are smaller. It's that in comedy, if the 
there's not a laugh. That mm-hmm. joke didn't work. It doesn't right. matter right. how well you crafted it. And in magic, if you haven't gotten a surprise, if you haven't bent the brain of somebody, you haven't somehow tapped into the most essential part of that storytelling. So I, yeah. I've come to feel that magic and comedy are the two most rigorous forms of narrative that require mm-hmm. the most attention to the finest detail. Yeah. Uh, so I hired a magic a magician oh, awesome. to direct our show, and it was great because really the kind of touring show that I enjoy the most feels like a magic show, except it's built with science. Yeah, I think it was actually Penn who said something along the lines of magic is the only art where you can buy talent or you can buy a career. <laughs> you just you, you buy the trick, and you're a magician. You know, it's not well, like comedian I, where you have to have a joke. I, I would. I, I I actually think I can add several dozen yeah. several dozen different industries to to that oh, list. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you could buy a welder. Yeah. Uh, you could buy a MIG welder for a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah. It sprays hot metal and electricity. <laughs> and uh, you could call yourself a welder. Yeah, you could call yourself one. You could call but it may not be a good a one. Yeah. yeah. And you could certainly go buy magic illusions and call yeah. yourself a magician. But uh, no, now, it's not the real thing. Is this how you got hooked up with The Amazing Randy? Because I know that you've done a bunch of his uh, The Amazing Weekend or The Amazing Show, whatever yeah. they call that, that um, conference. It, it, um, it was my, yeah, that was the first time I met Penn and Teller was oh, really? that Randy asked me to come to The yeah. Amazing Meeting in Vegas. Yeah, they're very close with them. Aren't yeah, they? and Randy called me up. Randy called me on the phone one day. I think it was probably around 2005 or 2006. And he said, Adam, this is the amazing Randy. And I was like, no. Randy, I said, I watched you live doing the milk bottle escape on Happy Days in 1971. I literally was watching that show as it aired. And he was like, well, you're one of my heroes for spreading spreading the good word of empirical-based understanding of the world. And I was like, I'm your hero. That's, That's stupid. I love you, Randy. Um, I still love he's Randy. So cool. He's still a, yeah. a, a friend and an amazing guy. Um, I have uh, I have pulled back from the skeptics communities. Oh, really? I have. What? Tell me why. Uh, they have descended into. <laughs> I don't know whether it's. I, I, I I'm not going to say it's in, in, intrinsic to the skeptics because uh-huh. this happens to so many groups, but it's just descended into a bunch of infighting and yelling that. Doesn't really? have any bearing on what the what the real mission is to me. What do skeptics argue about? Don't they kind of all agree yeah, on the empirical about, evidence? Uh, <laughs> it, there's just it turns out that there's uh, it turns out that there's a whole bunch of folks in the movement who are highly misogynistic. And really, yeah, oh, interesting. I, I I can't abide that for mm-hmm. even a second. Yeah. Um, I mean, I could probably see something like that on Reddit and Reddit communities and that kind of look, thing. You want to go look in, at anything Sam yeah. Harris or Richard Dawkins has said recently? Really? Yeah. It, really, like, I had Richard people on that a I year formerly ago, admired I espousing wow. ridiculous, uh, racist bullshit. Wow. So I, I pull back. Oh my and I, God. What I call myself now? Wow. I'm trying to piss everybody off. <laughs> I'm actually trying to please everyone because that's my that's my central uh, path. Uh, is I call myself a New Testament agnostic. I, I can't say atheist because it's not scientifically reasonable, right? Okay. I can't know. I, right, right, I, there's right, no, there's no right. no. Uh, so I'm an agnostic, which I take to, and I recognize there are multiple yeah. definitions for agnostic. People on Twitter have schooled me. Mm-hmm. I get that there are many definitions. I mean the one that is culturally prevalent of I don't know or do, I, I, can't, I right. don't know yes, I don't know no. Right. So that's me agnostic. And I say New Testament agnostic because I agree with everything Jesus said. Right. Okay. Right. I right, have right. no problems right. with any. The message of, is fine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. 
I think he'd have a problem if he showed up today. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's so heartening to hear you say that because, you know, I've said this for probably at least a year or two now. Fewer and fewer times do I hear people saying just simply, I don't know. No one says, I don't know anymore. No one says, what I don't know. What happened? Well, and so the other thing about it is uh, the the last linchpin in there is I, I fully, I read and I loved uh Hitchens for all of his insanity. Mm, sure. I, I loved God is not good. Yeah. Uh, and without a doubt, the, the most horrifying crimes have been perpetrated under religion. And But when I think about my intersection with religion, uh, I'm fourth generation has no use for the church. Like mm. my grandparents never went to church. Their grandparents mm. never went to church. Right. Your mom was a psychologist, yeah. psychiatrist. My mom was a, psycho- psych- was a psychotherapist. Yeah. My dad was an artist. Um However, the the I count among my friends many who have a deep abiding mm-hmm. faith. Yeah. And it is an incredibly important part of their lives. And when they talk about their faith and what it means to them, I am moved. And I feel a universality there. And they might call it they might what they feel might be God, I might feel might be art mm-hmm. or the, the 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 other the universal unconscious uh you know i don't have answers to those mm-hmm. these are the biggest questions there are yeah but i notice how moved i am by the radical acceptance of those who uh those friends of mine those people i love who who have a, a real faith and who go to church mm-hmm. uh well, it all comes from a good place. It all comes from a place of love, in theory. You know, in theory, yes, it does, <laughs> and I am moved when it does. Yeah, yeah, that's a lovely way to put yeah. it. And, and years back, I read that you had, I guess, proposed an episode of MythBusters where you were going to attempt to disprove <laughs> or to prove natural selection over creationism. Yeah. Whatever happened to that episode? Well, you know, it's or was f- that part of I don't know? <laughs> it's not part of I don't know. Okay. There, there are plenty of things you can do. There's just not many that are at all televisual <laughs> from, yeah. a, from a narrative okay. and produ- producing standpoint. It also, it's not addressing I mean, w- w- the a issue. A big bang. I mean, you tell me well, that's not good television? <laughs> the, the, right. The, the thing I had, the, the thing I realized after I said that was, like going after creationists is really mm-hmm. low hanging fruit. Yeah. As far as I'm yeah. concerned, it's yeah. that, that's not the it's not the problem that we're addressing. It's like mm-hmm. flat earthers. It's this tiny minority. I mean, infinitesimal, almost statistically insignificant yeah. minority, along with moon landing deniers and other <laughs> dopes. Yeah. Uh, that it's not even worth debating. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's the other part that I, I really agree with the idea that like, no, I'm not going to debate you about climate change. It's not worth right. debating. There's, right. To, to say that you don't want to elevate it. Yeah, yeah. No, not at all. Yeah. So, uh, I get that. you know, I was fascinated by the idea of the moths in England that changed their color because of the coal, uh, coal smoke. However, there's like there's all sorts of interesting issues, which I can't remember now because my <laughs> my brain is a sli- is a sieve. Uh but each time I looked into ways of empirically showing a natural selection process, it was either going to take way too long, include a gigantic sample of creatures that were infinitesimally small and yeah. thus unfilmable. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. it turned out it wasn't even the Got real it. problem. Okay. And, and what's your deal with the dodo bird? Your, oh, my your, God. I just is love that the part dodo. of the natural selection thing or what? Um, I. No, it's actually a really interesting question. Um, 
the dodo famously, of course, went extinct in the 17th, 16th, 17th century uh, on the island of Mauritius off the, the, the eastern coast of Africa, uh, off of Madagascar. Um, and it was so close to us, right? Like, I probably, prob- there are probably heirlooms in my family. <laughs> That were built when the when the dodos were alive, right? This is their oh, you build- mean close in terms of time, yeah, yeah. right? This yeah. is three or yeah. four hundred years yeah. ago. It's very close right. to us. It's it's three old people stacked against <laughs> each other, right? Four, four, five or six old people. Um, that and that closeness, and yet it's invisibility, right? So mm-hmm. for the longest time, even though we had dozens of dodo skeletons all around the world in museums, and there are tens of thousands of dodo bones in the ground in Mauritius. There was no dodo from a single. There was no dodo skeleton where all the bones came from a single specimen. Oh, really? That's how poor huh. our record keeping was, and how little we valued wow. the idea of extinction and the rarity yeah. of of these events. Huh. Um, the British Museum. This is a. I said this in my TED talk. The British Museum had had a had a full sample. But in uh, uh, some space-saving zeal in the 19th century, they cut off the head and the feet, and they saved those, and they burned the rest. And what? when you look at those specimens, it says the rest was lost in a fire, quote unquote. <laughs> so, uh, for me, the dodo wow. represents this this kind of wonderful human myopia yeah. that I'm kind of thrilled by. I'm also thrilled by lost texts. I was just mm-hmm. talking to someone about this last night. Um, I love the idea that we only have, what, a couple of dozen Greek plays, even though there were thousands. Yeah. And I know that there are more, and we'll find them in someone's attic or a library somewhere mislabeled or a palimpsest mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, there's the idea of the lost knowledge found again, because they, um, the, the, I believe it was the museum on Mauritius found a specimen that does have all the bones oh, from really? a single specimen. Oh, and it's right a there. remarkable, huh. it actually informs all sorts of new understanding about it. And they're still studying it. And there are wonderful experts around the world uh, taking a look at this specimen. It, it, to me, that stuff yeah. is all sort of part and parcel. Um, and it connects me, it connects my head in, to, to the line of history in a way I find kind of intellectually stimulating. So yeah. that's what that's the I, you didn't I don't think you expected such a long answer for no what's, no what's no up with no those? no I really I, I I certainly appreciate that and you know I, that's why I never throw out books because in my mind I think what if that's the last copy of this book that someone put their heart and soul into <laughs> and you that, say and that I is, think I what just, if I wrote a book and that was the last record of uh, something yeah. that I put on paper and yeah. some jerk threw it away because it was taking up too much room on at the same time shelf. at the same time I have I have a. We probably have more than a uh, – let me see here. We probably have 150 linear feet of books in my house. Oh, really? Yeah, maybe even a couple hundred. And we just have gone through this whole process of um, reorganizing where the categories, fiction, oh, yeah? poetry, film, plays, et cetera, now. nonfiction, which is a whole shit fight because <laughs> uh, how do you split up nonfiction? Right. Right. <laughs> Histories, politics, et cetera. Uh, anyway, in, in doing you, so, we biography actually, messes it up too. Biography like... and history, right? Is endurance biography <laughs> yeah, exactly. or is it history? <laughs> yeah. uh, so it all gets yeah. kind of spongy. But w- in doing so, uh, we, got, we, we, we created a pile of probably 20 feet. 
of 20 linear feet of books. And yeah. our friends, wow. just everybody who comes over has to scan the pile because there's some great <laughs> stuff in there. And sure. there's a lot of stuff that are great books that I just happen to buy two of, or my wife and I each owned a Same copy. Same here. Same here. Yeah, every time I have an author on, they, they must send me like two or three books, and I can't just right. get rid of it. I have to give it to someone or do totally something with the Totally agree with that book. ethos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Someone gives you a book, you got to give it away. Well, you know, coming from a film and television background, I have to wonder, did you ever imagine that you would have become one of the leading popularizers of science now? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not, uh, no. Uh, you know, Because you are. You you rank up there with, I would say, Neil deGrasse Tyson and Michio Kaku and those, others like that. All, those guys are heroes of mine. And it's funny that uh, I went through a lot of different iterations of what I thought my job was when I was mm -hmm. making Mythbusters. Um at first, I thought it was just hired to build experiments. I thought it was hired to build stuff. That some of that was part of experiments and some of that was set dressing. And then I realized, oh, no, no, I've got to be talking about this stuff, so i got to know it a little better. I started doing the research, and then I realized uh, – I realized – I realized when we were filming the the episode about will a penny thrown from the Empire State Building kill you when it hits the ground, <laughs> I ended up building a wind tunnel that showed that a penny has two terminal velocities. This was not <laughs> something that I found anybody else had ever done, and it's not that it's that difficult to do, but I did it myself in order to physically demonstrate the twin terminal velocities rather than say the math. Mm -hmm. And that told me I had something real to contribute to this show. It was a real sea change in the first season when I came up with that. And so then I realized, okay, so it's methodological design. That's what I can contribute. <laughs> and uh, somewhere around the, the mid middle of Mythbusters tenure, 2007, 2008, I'm, I'm in a... Uh, in a podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson. Oh, yeah. You just mentioned. Star Talk. Uh, in New York at Star Talk. I'm doing his podcast, Star Talk, and I'm watching him go, and I'm thinking, look at this guy. He is a vat grown science communicator. This is yeah. his mission. He is a yeah. proselytizer. I'll bet there's planets on his underpants, right? <laughs> like this guy is committed. And then I thought, that is such a cool mission to have. And then I realized, oh, I am also a science communicator. <laughs> that is also my mission. Yeah. Right? And we, we, we take that mission. And then I, I ultimately came around to realize, for me, uh, the step goes one level higher. Not higher, but one level elsewhere. And the, and the elsewhere is storytelling. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that when I was a model maker on Star Wars, gluing little bits of plastic models onto spaceships, the aesthetics of where that little plastic bit goes and whether it's level or not and what goes to it and from it and the paint job it gets, all of those decisions are informed by a story that's in the head of the person acting upon that little piece of plastic. Mm -hmm. And if I, as the model maker, don't have a clear story about what that thing is and does, I don't have to have an actual story of, oh, this is the turbine encabulator. None, that's not what I mean. What I mean is if I look at it and it doesn't feel right, the story is not being told correctly. Right. And so I'm imbuing this object with the right narrative to help the filmmaker tell their story. Mm -hmm. Again, I, looking at the big picture, how yes, it all fits in. Right. Yeah. Right. Because the big picture of the Star Wars universe is very different than the big picture of the Star Trek universe. They have yeah. radically different aesthetics. And you better understand them at least intuitively. <laughs> otherwise, you won't be able to yeah. model make within those universes. Yeah. And so I realized that what I did, what I've been doing on Mythbusters and what I continue to do, even with my science uh, process proselytization of science is point out to people that all we're doing is we're building stories to understand the mm -hmm. world and the universe. And 
this is my this was the 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 real understanding I came to from making the show Mythbusters is that science and art are not either ends of a spectrum. They are simply two different ways that we tell stories to better understand yeah. ourselves and our universe. And yeah. one is arguably more yeah. rigorous and the other is arguably more emotional, but cases, there are plenty of outliers and plenty of crossover. They yeah. bend deeply. We're going to take a quick break and then I'll be back with more with Adam Savage when we come back in just a moment. To most Americans, the dealings of the Department of Defense are a mystery, and the Pentagon nothing more than an opaque five-sided box that they regard with a mixture of awe and suspicion. Now in his new book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon, former Secretary of Defense Ash Carter sheds light on all that happens inside one of the nation's most iconic and most closely guarded buildings taking readers behind the scenes to reveal the inner workings of the Pentagon, its vital mission, and what it takes to lead. Drawn from Carter's 36 years of leadership experience in the DOD, this is the essential book for understanding the challenge of defending America in a dangerous world and imparting a trove of incisive lessons that can guide leaders in a complex organization. Facebook's Sheryl Sandberg says this book should be required reading for every citizen who wants to know more about how our country stays secure. And Henry Kissinger says this book should be essential reading for anyone concerned about the evolution that technology and political upheavals around the world impose on us. Order Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon on Amazon, Audible, or wherever books are sold. And now, back to the show. I have to say, it just seems like you have the funnest job in the world. Do you still get that thrill every time you get to take something that you've built and then put it to the test? I do. I do. Yeah. And that thrills on camera. And I love bringing that thrill to the story. Um, I will add commensurate with that. It's also the hardest job. Like oh, everything oh. that we do, that whenever we are doing something that we truly love and that we want because we love it, we want it to be as good as it can be. Mm -hmm. We're, it's going to take every last ounce of our of our effort and our energy and our heart. And so uh, the thing I like to point out to people is Mythbusters and Savage Builds is no different. It is so much fun making that show. And I'm making it with my family. These are people I worked with on Mythbusters for more than a decade yeah. and a half. So it's it's a great set. It's a great crew. It's a great build build environment. And it's also the most difficult four months yeah. I've had in my life. <laughs> I'm uh, sure. You know, was, you 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 put your whole you put your whole self into the thing. Yeah, and I have to imagine that it's got to be somewhat heartbreaking when you build something and you're really rooting for it to be able to pull it off, and then it just doesn't pan out <laughs> or goes well, sideways. And so that happened in the second season of Savage. And sorry, in the second episode of Savage Builds, right. where we replicated <laughs> the great Panjandrum. Uh, yeah, explain what that is, because I don't think most people know what a panjandrum. Yeah, I can't even say it right. Panjandrum. It was. A, it was. A, it was a real tongue twister for everybody. A panjandrum. Picture a giant steel frame that describes a spool mm -hmm. with uh, with uh, ten foot wheels and about a six foot wide uh, axle between them, 
And the Panjandrum was a way for the Allies to get munitions up and over all the obstacles on the beaches at Normandy to get to the seawall to blow it up. So this spool, each of these 10-foot-tall wheels, was powered by rockets so that it would drive up and over all the hedgehogs and steel embankments and concertina wire and deliver the 2,000 pounds of explosives on its axle to the seawall and blow it up so the Allies could get through. And the British tested it on the in the on the beaches of England during World War II and could never get it to aim correctly. They tried cables. They had rockets misfiring, and the footage yeah. of them trying it is appalling. Yeah, <clears throat> and, and it's rocket propelled, which like rocket, looks like something a kid would build. It does, and there are rockets like flying all over, and dogs running around, and there's people standing there watching. It looks like this terrifyingly lethal thing, and so it's easy to look at that and think, what a bunch of idiots. Mm-hmm. This is super absurd. Um, and I realized when talking to the production team about this show, I realized, no, this is actually an engineer solution. You have big obstacles, make big wheels. Yeah. That's that's really clever, actually. Less moving parts means less things that can go wrong. Right. Rocket power, right. I mean, you don't have an engine transmission to deal with. There's all sorts of ways in which the, 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 the specifics are generated by great engineering thinking. And so Adam Stelzner, a uh, 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 wonderful engineer scientist at, uh, at Jet Propulsion Labs and a friend of mine came and worked with me for a couple of weeks to redesign the Panjandrum to be driven by centrifugal force, uh, to be basically to spin up a pair of 800 pounds of flywheel on the side of our Panjandrum and tap into that with truck brakes to make the thing spin and move <laughs> forward. And it was a great idea and it totally didn't work. And at the, at the when it when it became clear to me that it didn't work, I thought, I mean, my first thought was, crap, really? <laughs> it was it, it was the very first thing we shot. It was that you know you shoot out of order. Yeah. It was the very first thing we shot. So we're at the end of this, and it's also January in San Francisco, which this year was the one of the wettest winters we've oh, ever yeah. had. So muddy, muddy, <laughs> muddy, muddy. We had we got we got. We got bounced from several locations in a single story, which I've never been bounced from a location because of weather ever. Yeah. In Northern California, yeah, that's yeah. really rare. So this episode was, was a grueling bear of a battle <laughs> every single day. And on the last day, as the sun is setting and this thing totally craps the bed, I looked at it and I was like, okay, I have to accept that we don't have any more money to do this again. That we're out of time, so there's no more days, and this thing definitely doesn't work, and so it's there is no there is no catharsis no way here, <laughs> and so then I thought, because it comes down to me, I'm the I'm the executive producer of this mm-hmm. show. This is I've got my name on it, I've got my face on it. What 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 story can I tell? And then I thought, okay, this moment happens at the very end of the episode, and so I'm the viewer, and I want to. How, what do I have to achieve as the producer to help the viewer? Well, it's, this is about three minutes before the end of the episode. So what I need is to know that I have story to tell between this failure and the end of the episode <laughs> that keeps me, the viewer, invested in the story. Yeah. And I realized, no, the story of an iterative failure is an important one and an abiding one and one that both Adam Stelzner and his capacity at JPL and I and my capacity as a Mythbuster have experienced many, many times many of the things we try don't work and that's yeah. part of the process. Right, it, right. It's not a failure, it's simply an iteration and I realize I can tell that story mm-hmm. and then I can bring some gasoline and I can blow it up <laughs> because that's fun and give yeah. give a little bit of a show Yeah. but I don't think that I'm, I, 
to me, the, the realization that I get to tell an honest story about iteration mm -hmm. and add a little bit of bombast and spectacle to, to dress it up and the discovery, my network is such a good partner that they accept that. Yeah. Right. I was terrified handing them the cut of this show and they'd be like, what? You can't make a show where you fail. I was totally expecting that. And they were like, no, we yeah. like this episode. And I thought, this yeah. is great because. Well, that's science. It's, you know, I mean, discovery should, should definitely embrace that. We want people to dare to try and fail and then try again. There's nothing more intimidating to people than unfettered success. Mm -hmm. Yes. Right. Absolutely. And so when we look at someone like Elon Musk, we're like, wow, PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. I am so sure if you could unpack the the the, the can of Elon Musk, you'd find yeah. all sorts of horrifying failure and self-doubt in there. I think we are right now. <laughs> it's plausible. <laughs> and it's really important that we normalize and talk about yes, that because yes. when, when we only show successes, that makes kids think what I used to think, which is that science is only for smart people. Right. And yeah, the fact is, true. it's not. Yeah. The distribution of idiots is equivalent across every <laughs> field including science and if you think you have a proclivity you have something to contribute my yeah. biggest goal with science communication is helping kids realize that it's not an avocation it's just mm -hmm. a vocation yeah and more than that there's every single working scientist i have ever encountered loves their job and i don't know many industries in which i can say that exact thing Right, yeah, like not know, every copywriter true. I know loves their job. Yeah. In fact, most yeah. of them hate it. Uh, right, there's a there's a lot of industries where yeah. it's, it's just like you know sometimes that's just a job is just a job. Yeah. But every scientist I know, whether they're measuring the you know the methane in the feces of tsetse flies mm -hmm. or or the, the the migrating patterns of something, they they really love yeah. and believe in their work. Well, yeah, and it's also it's what you were saying earlier about you know the power of just admitting, I don't know. And yes. science is one of those few fields where they celebrate being wrong as much as they celebrate being right. right. There's still that thrill of discovery when they're wrong. And, and I maybe think it's they more exciting. I think science can do more to celebrate being, being wrong. There's a, there's a thing being talked about right now, which is that we very rarely publish scientific studies with a null result. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Which yeah. means we only publish, which <laughs> right. means there's a, there's a bias on behalf of the scientific mm -hmm. publishing industry and thus the people who publish papers and thus yeah. people who write papers that a scientific study has to achieve some understanding of something. Oh, you have to see some mm -hmm. big difference in the data. Yeah. But there's a lot of tests you can do where you get no data or you don't, you get a null result and that's a result. That's yeah. an information yeah. about how that thing works or doesn't work mm -hmm. and what affects it. Yeah. Um, that idea of of saying I don't know is is the most important, and it's really important to realize also that nobody knows. Yeah. I I once went to uh, I was in in a legal battle with someone a few years ago, and they their stance on every aspect of the legal battle was well, we'll just take it to court and get them to decide, mm -hmm. as if there was just like the back of a box that someone could read and follow a path. And the answer I realized going through all this legal crap was no there's absolutely no <laughs> hard and fast rules for any of this it's yeah. all interpretive oh yeah yeah and, and who knows nobody, what kind of jury you get yeah, yeah. and it, science is the same exact way i think a lot of people think well i don't know but also i'm assuming somebody knows mm -hmm. and the answer is the end of every line of questioning is we have no idea yeah what is gravity well i can tell you what it does and i can tell you about the inverse square law and i can very finely measure its effects but what is it who <laughs> Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> what is sentience? No idea. No idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to bring up episode one of Savage Builds. 
you build a working replica of the Iron Man suit. Yes. What was the hardest part of that project, aside from just getting permission from Marvel? Actually, getting permission from Marvel was about the easiest. Really? Well, I I am one degree separated from Kevin Feige, uh, uh, who I have spoken to and met on a couple of occasions. We are we are. Mutual admiration society. I mean, that guy, I, my hat is off to him. The, the MCU is incredible. And so I'm one degree removed from Kevin. So I, I, I sent a letter that got sent to him that asked for permission. And he was like, I love this idea. Let's make this work. And he just waved a magic MCU wand and made it happen. Really? Yeah. Was that so, easy? Uh, wow. Shane Mahan, uh, amazing designer, of, of incredible special effects going back to, I mean, many of your favorite movies from Jurassic Park to, mm-hmm. you know, tons and tons of stuff at Legacy Effects, formerly Stan Winston Studios. They supplied me with their original um, computer files of the Iron Man Mark II armor. So the stuff I thought was going to be impossible turned out to actually yeah. work like clockwork <laughs> and beautiful. One of the most difficult parts was the computer files were 275 some odd separate computer files. Wow. Each one describing a single facet of Iron Man's armor <laughs> without any instructions about how yeah. they went together. <laughs> so when EOS, the, the manufacturers of the titanium 3D printer, who generously donated all the 3D printing. Yeah, for this that was episode, cool. Which, again, was that was arguably the episode wouldn't have happened without them. Mm-hmm. It was a quarter of a million dollars worth of 3D oh my printing. God, really? Yeah. Wow. No, we I think we almost broke them. <laughs> I don't think we not that we broke their machines, but we pushed their machines to their limit. Yeah. And their their wonderful technician Austin, uh, who lives in Austin, um, yeah, we we really almost broke poor Austin. Um, that was cool. They they three D printed in titanium, right? They did. I didn't uh, even know you could do that. Yet. Yeah, and and actually, I'm really proud of the 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 narrative piece we put into the show that describes how the 3D printing process works, mm-hmm. in which effectively powdered titanium alloy is laid in a micro layer on top of a platen, and then a laser melts it, and then another powdered layer is laid down on top of that, and a laser melts that to the previous layer, and slowly over thousands of these layers, you build an object. Um, but what orientation it's in depends, uh, it dictates how much it could or could not warp while it's mm-hmm. in situ. Uh, these prints... Uh, take a there's a, lo- a big time investment in each mm-hmm. print uh, and a big material investment. You can't quite always reuse the titanium powder, so it's <laughs> it's a it's a tricky process. Wow! Uh, and then there's compounded by the fact that nothing sticks to titanium. So how are we going to attach huh. these pieces to each other? Oh, became yeah. another challenge. Yeah. <laughs> there are industrial adhesives, but they often take some caustic acids to prepare titanium surface to be glued. <laughs> and again, we didn't have any kind of time like this. Um, <laughs> So uh, every part of the episode after approval and getting the computer files was a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean a nightmare in the best way, yeah. right? Like the Colorado School of Mines, Craig and his team of grad students were amazing. I, I love that school. I love that campus, that faculty, that student body. They like put in so many hours yeah. grinding titanium for us. And then- Yeah, because this wasn't just a costume. I feel like I should point that out. This wasn't a costume. This was a working Iron Man suit that flies and is bulletproof and all that. Well, so right? And so to be clear, when we <laughs> yeah. started the episode, I simply knew that I had given a talk at the Colorado School of Mines. They had said, we got this brand new 3D printer that prints in titanium. You want to print anything with it? <laughs> and I said, can you print a suit of armor? I had no idea how long it takes. And they were like, 
Yeah. <laughs> so I went back to San Francisco. We're in pre-production on Savage Builds, and we're talking about stuff. And I suggested a suit of medieval armor and titanium. And one of my team said, what about Iron Man armor? Because I've, I had it previously expressed. I'd always wanted to make an Iron Man yeah. costume. I in fact have a couple of fiberglass unfinished suits of Iron Man armor in my collection that I've never <laughs> really? gotten around to finishing. And he said, "What about Iron Man?" And I thought, actually, I could make that happen. And again, I was still thinking of I wasn't. I was still thinking of this as. At this point, it's just a gag in my head. Mm -hmm. So okay, three D printed titanium. That's awesome. Uh, Iron Man armor, that's great. We can put those together and we can get these things rolling. And now that ball seems to be rolling, which is great. But then we get to the Colorado School of Mines and one of the students shows me a, a scanning electron microscope a photo of regular titanium and the sintered 3D printed titanium. And it turns out all metal, all metal has different Sorry, every metal has its own properties of its flexibility or ductility, uh, its uh, its springiness, its softness. And often within metal groups, uh, these properties can be adjusted with alloys, i.e. adding other metals to the metal that you're that you're using, and also by the application of heat under careful okay. conditions. Yeah. So for instance, that whole thing where you heat a steel sword up to and then quench it in oil, these are mm -hmm. all ways to adjust the internal structure of the steel to be both hard and flexible uh -huh. enough to be a sword. Okay. Well, when you're 3D printing titanium, it turns out you can actually attenuate its grain structure in the 3D printing process itself to be far more uh, <laughs> uh, impact resistant and springy than normal titanium. And that's when I realized, whoa, I'm not making a thing that equates to an Iron Man suit. I'm actually making a working, a real working prototype, which I, I might have said something along those lines at the beginning of this episode when we started going, but realizing that I could say that and be 100% truthful. If Tony Stark showed up today, this is how he'd start uh -huh. making this suit. Yeah, yeah. I, being able to say that then now makes it a, bit of, a yeah. bit of narrative meat that I can sink right. my teeth into. Yeah, I mean, this was a working prototype right. of an Iron Man suit. And it's not yeah. powered inside with all sorts of crazy right. intricate not, no mechanics. nuclear power. Of, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, yeah, yeah I'm, I, I'm, it's not powered by cold fusion yeah. and I don't have repulsors and all of that. Yeah. But, but it is bulletproof mm -hmm. and we did get it to fly. I mean... At every, I will tell you that at so many stages, and if any of my crew and team or Colorado School of Mines people are listening, they're probably smiling ruefully to themselves because at at least 50 different moments in the process of making this episode, we were all sure it wasn't going to work. Yeah. We were all sure like, oh, we're going to have to give this one. It's not going to, yeah. oh, no, this isn't going to go. I was skeptical, especially the, <laughs> well, the so propulsion system because like. You had these Popeye-like forearms, mini jet engines that yeah. are strapped to, like, your forearms. Yeah. <laughs> and you're supposed to, like, use those to be able to maneuver. Huh? Totally amazing. <laughs> uh, Richard, so that's Richard Browning's gravity rig, mm. and I got to learn how to fly in it. Yeah. Um, that was another totally amazing part of that episode. Yeah, that was just awesome. And I also read that you do an episode with director Peter Jackson. What was yeah. that one about? Well, Peter, um, I've been friends with Peter for a few years, and... Uh, to be clear, I have a whole family now down in Wellington, oh, really? uh, New Zealand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Peter and his wife Fran. I, I love those guys and their family. Um, and Richard Taylor and his team at Weta Workshop. I now count many among them as my close friends and my family. I love that place. I love those people. So any excuse I have to get to Wellington, I take yeah. it <laughs> and I run there. Uh, and I called Peter up because 
he is obsessed with World War One. Oh right, uh, yeah. Obsessed he did that with, documentary recently. He made that yeah. beautiful documentary. They shall not go old, grow old. But right. he also um, put up a magnificent exhibit in Wellington, New Zealand, that ran for several years on World War One, specifically on the Gallipoli campaign, um, but also on the Somme. Uh, and as part of his obsession with World War One, he loves the airplanes, and he started collecting oh, yeah. them. And then the twenty years biplanes. ago, he built an airplane yeah. factory. That is huh. the only one in the world that makes World War One airplanes. Really? Yeah, I didn't know that. Yep. Um, oh, cool. And he builds them precisely to the original blueprints. So wow. it's it's a little it's a little bit of a misnomer in my head to call them replicas because they are exact in every possible detail. There is huh. no there is no like every bit of gum rubber is the same type of gum rubber specked in the original every bit of leather every bit of wow. springiness and steel and fastener is the same spec the only Incredible. difference i think they told me was instead of old wood glue or rabbit skin glue they used epoxy glue for the wood spars because it's way more stable and lasts a lot longer huh. Uh, so anyway, I, the, a couple of years ago when I was in New Zealand, I'd gone up to the Masterton, uh, 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 Masterton to, to fly in his planes. He'd given me a, a couple of flights and it was beautiful. And I called him up and said, I'd love to be able to dogfight in your planes. What if we attached laser tag to them? And he <laughs> said, perfect. yes, I would love that. And this is informed by the fact that Peter told me that he and his family love to play laser tag. Oh, yeah. Like they, they have this big property and they play laser tag on them. And I think that's awesome. And so I thought it would be great to do it on the planes. That's and I brought so cool. in this uh, wonderful, wonderful electronics designer, Zach, who designed an incredible system of, uh, of because it's laser tag is hard to play in direct sunlight. Oh, over, oh yeah. Over long yeah. distances. And we yeah. wanted our laser tag system to be accurate over the same distance that these planes would have had to be for dogfighting. Mm -hmm. So it had to be, um, I think, about about 100 yards, okay. around 100 yards is where you'd be close enough to actually start uh -huh. harming your opponent, right? <laughs> so we designed the system, and we, we actually didn't use one sensor per plane. We used 15 per plane. <laughs> because we had lethal hits on the pilot, okay. that would bring a plane down. Yeah. Hit on the engine, that would mm -hmm. make the engine fail. But hits on the body, those aren't going to do anything to yeah. one of those planes. They're just going to go right through canvas and the plane still flies. Yeah. So we wanted to know how many non-lethal hits we were getting as well. <laughs> and then that led to me and the pilots, uh, uh, Bevan and Gary, learning. I mean, because these guys are, they both fly these old planes for a living. They're basically historical reenactors, and they read the accounts of the original pilots to learn about the flying techniques that they were doing, and they were applying that knowledge to the dogfighting we were doing. Wow. I, I realized at the end of the episode, I might even say it in the episode, I can't remember, is that what we actually built was a time machine. How cool. Because by the third dogfight, Peter's down there on the field in his observation vehicle watching <laughs> us with binoculars, and we are like actively working hard to try and get each other into our sights. And I'm in the gunner seat, which is not a seat at all. It is a wooden platform with a cable going from my waist to a hole in the floor. And I'm holding on to this gun, which swivels when I grab these two bicycle brakes. And I'm trying to do that in 100 plus mile per hour winds while also pulling G's and negative G's. It's just pilot is rolling up and over. And each time we come down, we're assessing how that, how that went and, 
was a really, it was actually really difficult. It was no, much more difficult in many ways for all of us involved in a way that was really neat. Yeah. Because we each time we came down, the pilots were like, oh, I learned so much more about the history that I've read. Oh, yeah. Like, I understood this yeah, maneuver. Yeah, you get to see it in real real time. And to yeah. experience, like, even for for all the Fokkers, the German Fokker, that was our triplane enemy, for all of its uh, well I thought you were being crude. No, no. For, for all of the Fokkers' <laughs> well-earned reputation as an incredible <laughs> acrobatic plane, there were still some situations in which having a two-seat plane where a gunner can concentrate on yeah. you is, can be a very lethal combination. Wow. And we totally proved that. It was yeah. really neat. That's so cool. And those things look kind of flimsy from the footage I've they seen. Look, so it, I don't, it, I, you're braver than I am. It, I, except that I point this out. Um, now, and this is also sort of part of the point of the whole episode is they do look flimsy. They're made out of wood and canvas. And they're made out of a bunch of not, ex not very exotic materials in general. Uh, and when you get into one, to take a flight, you're—it's called a tail dragger, right? Because it sits there, not level on the on the landing field, yeah. but it's tailed down, and you're at this angle, and you don't feel quite comfortable because it just doesn't feel quite natural. And the plane starts to take off, and it takes off on grass, so it's this rumbly oh, start. Yeah. And then the tail lifts up, and the plane pulls off the ground, and you realize, and then all of a sudden, it feels super stable, huh. and you realize. I think every human that would be in one of these planes could feel that stability. As an engineer, what I understand is I'm in a machine built to do a thing. And until it's yeah. doing that thing, it doesn't mm -hmm. feel stable. On the ground and rumbling along, it feels like this rickety canvas and wood <laughs> cart. But the moment it takes to the air, I'm in a machine not only designed and built to be in the air, but designed over such a rigorously iterative process between 1914 and 1918 when the British went from 20, what, 250 planes, no, 25 planes to 25,000 planes wow. in four years. Huh. Constantly, constantly iterating to improve, to keep up with the enemy, to add advancements and add reliability that these machines were designed and built by the greatest engineers on earth at the moment they were built. Wow. They are the atomic bombs of their age. I hate to use such a destructive thing, but there is but, a Manhattan yeah, Project. Yeah, cutting edge technology. These, we that know the Manhattan it. Project was yeah. the greatest minds of that mm -hmm. generation or of any generation. Mm -hmm. World War I airplanes are very much the same yeah. thing. Incredible. That, that the, so this is the reason they build them precisely to the blueprints, because these are perfectly tuned systems mm -hmm. in which each yeah. part of that system relies on each other part. And as one of their engineers told me, if we replaced something with carbon fiber, well, that's never going to break, and it's going to put stress on some other part of the plane that we can't predict, and thus all of our maintenance schedules don't actually work anymore. Wow. Right. So <laughs> what I wanted to show was it's easy to look at the past and think, oh, well, that's the old way of doing mm -hmm. things. And there are certainly processes and technologies that were used on these planes that we don't use anymore because we don't have to. But that doesn't mean that they were primitive in mm -hmm. any sense of the word. Wow. The, the and the and the joy I get as an engineer of looking at these things and having the knowledge about them laid into me by the engineers and the people who fly these planes and Peter himself and realizing what magnificent what magnificent machines they are. Yeah. And they're so far from primitive. That's the story I wanted that I went yeah. down there to tell. Yeah. 
I, I can tell that you have so much fun with your job. I, I don't know if I've ever met anyone who has as much enthusiasm for what they do as you do, Adam. Before we go, real quickly, I just have to ask, what is the most useful tool or material that you always keep on you when you're working? Oh, uh, okay. Material. Or, or what is the most essential thing? Well, uh, okay, tape? essential is different than useful. <laughs> okay, oh, okay, okay. Um. I mean, I, look, I, I almost never don't have a Leatherman multi-tool okay. at my disposal. Okay. And the two things I use on that all the time are the pliers and the knife blade. Okay. Uh, they allow me to grab yeah. and to cut. These mm -hmm. are the most two, two of the most basic operations. <laughs> as far as materials, if you you know if you gave me only one or two, I mean, I might choose simple cardboard and coat hanger wire. Really? Yeah. Coat hanger. Wire. Coat hanger wire is huh. one of my coat hanger wire is one of my favorite that. things in the world. Really? It's the fingernail of materials. <laughs> it's not too hard. It's yeah. not too yeah. soft, and it's always where you need it. <laughs> okay. I love coat hangers. I actually I okay. actually harvest coat hangers. Yeah. Which means when I get Get a crap ton from the everyone ends up with a crap ton of wire hangers. Yeah. What I do is I cut out the straight parts and I actually have a rack huh. in my shop for the long straight part. I don't wow. bother unbending them. It's they're yeah. it's not worth my time. Yeah. Right? So I simply cut out the long parts and store those in a rack. And the the there are many different thicknesses of the wire, uh -huh. but in almost every huh. case, it is soft enough to be workable and hard enough to be useful. Wow, you're the opposite of mommy dearest. You're like more wire coat hangers, more wire coat hangers. I hope in every way that I am the opposite of yes. mommy dearest. Well, again, Savage Builds airs Fridays at 10 Eastern on the Science Channel. Adam Savage, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Adam Savage for coming on the podcast. Don't miss his new show, Savage Builds, Fridays at 10 Eastern on the Science Channel. For more fun stuff, visit adamsavage.com and follow him on Twitter at at don't try this. Yes, that's right, at don't try this. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at Kickass News Pod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kickass News.